Thank you for listening to Changed by His Word, a podcast of Pine Level Missionary Baptist Church featuring the preaching and teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Lee. We invite you to join us each Sunday at 11 a.m. for worship. For more information, visit us online at pinelevelmbc.org. And now for today's message. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, the Bible says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon the statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered them, or and he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. In the book of Exodus chapter 33, Moses said to God in a prayer, Show me your glory. And the Lord responded to Moses and said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then the Lord instructed Moses to do something pretty remarkable. He said to Moses, while my glory is passing by, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to take my hand and place my hand upon you. And then I'm going to pass by you. And as I pass by you, I will remove my hand and you'll be able to see my back. But he said, my face shall not be seen. Now fast forward to the New Testament and listen to these words recorded by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 18. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, listen to this, of His majesty. For we have received honor and glory from God the Father. Such an utterance as this was made known, uh, made by Him, by the, magi- by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. This account that Peter references here in 1 Peter is what you and I have in the text before us 
this morning. For the next few moments, I simply want to lay three truths on your heart in a message that I've entitled, Show Me Your Glory. If you're taking notes, I want you to notice first the revelation. We find this in verses 2 through 4. Now, not only does Mark record this account, it's also recorded in Matthew chapter 17, as well as Luke chapter 9. And as I've mentioned before, keep in, uh, keep in uh, mind the context, because context is crucial. Now, Mark mentions here in verse 2, six days. So, six days had passed. If you remember what happened six days prior to this, Jesus had asked the most important question that you'll ever be asked. The most important question that will ever be asked. And this is the question. Who do you say that I am? And without any hesitation, without any delay, Peter responds and he says, You are the Christ. And then for the first time in Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen. He said, The Son of Man must suffer. He will be rejected. He'll be killed. And then three days later, He will rise again. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 12, that I read just a moment ago, The Son of Man, He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt or be despised. Now, I want you to think for just a moment what it would have been like if you would have been in the disciples' shoes. I mean, this literally rocked their world. I mean, they were shaken to the core. They had no idea what to say. They had no idea what to do. They could not wrap their minds around what Jesus was talking about. All this talk of suffering. The Son of Man must suffer. He will indeed suffer. So they're trying to make sense of all that Jesus is teaching. Now don't think for a moment that the disciples had it all together. Amen? I mean, we like to look at the disciples and put them on pedestals and, and elevate them and say, these guys had it all together. They knew everything there was to know. But that's simply not true. They didn't know everything there is to know about Jesus, and neither do you. Amen? Neither do I. So here we see Mark do something very similar to what we saw in chapter 5 using this sandwich technique. Sandwich right between suffering in Mark 8.31 and suffering in Mark 9.12, you have the account of the transfiguration or the revelation. Now Jesus takes Peter, James and John. Remember these guys are also referred to as the inner circle. They follow Jesus very closely. Jesus takes them up a mountain. Now, don't forget, there were 12 disciples. And no doubt, Jesus loved the 12 disciples. He poured his life and his heart into the 12 disciples. But Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, Jesus spent the most time with these guys. And these three men were present at major events throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. So he takes them up a high mountain, the Bible says. And you talk about a mountaintop high. I mean, think about what that must have been like. We want to be on top of the mountain with Jesus, amen? We don't ever want to walk down in the valley. We want to always be on the mountain with Jesus, so much so that Peter said, Hey, Jesus, why don't we build some tabernacles here so we can camp and hang out? That sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? I mean, if you're on top of the mountain with Jesus, why in the world do you want to leave the mountaintop and come back down? It would have been wonderful to be on the mountaintop with Jesus. 
Now, it's interesting here, Mark doesn't specifically mention which mountain this was. And there may have been a number of reasons for that. Scholars do tell us that it was either one of two mountains. First, it could have been Mount Hermon, which would have been just a short distance from the area they were in, in Caesarea Philippi. And then others believe that the account took place atop Mount Tabor. Now, after Jesus and his disciples returned from Caesarea Philippi to Galilee... So the picture you see on the, dis the display there, your screen if you're here, if you're watching online, that's actually a picture that I took of Mount Tabor. Now Ma Mount Tabor stands out at a distance. I'm standing at the top of Megiddo. Megiddo was a city that had been rebuilt some 28 times over a period of 7,000 years. And it's located in the Jezreel Valley. Now this valley has played an important role throughout history as it was a major thoroughfare. Right now in the Jezreel Valley, there are trees, there are farms, there are greenhouses, there are fields, and never before in history has it been like it is today. It's been a place of war and bloodshed throughout history. But today it seems to be a very peaceful place. But I would, be, I would have you know this morning that it's not going to stay that way forever. Because this valley plays an important role in the end times. You see, it's here that the final battle of Armageddon will take place. This is a place that will be bloodshed, unlike any bloodshed that we've ever seen before. And John tells us in the book of Revelation in chapter 14, that there will be so much bloodshed that it will be up to the horse's bridle. Imagine that, if you will, for just a moment. And think about what I experienced standing there, looking down at that peaceful valley. You're talking about giving you the chill bumps, thinking of the fact that one day, this valley that's full of peace right now, is going to be filled with blood. You see, Jesus will defeat the devil once and for all. Jesus will reign victorious. And that will take place right there in that valley. Now, regardless of which mountain it was that the miraculous event took place on, the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured, and Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses to that account. Not only does Mark tell us that, not only does Matthew tell us that, not only does Luke tell us that, but the account I read just a moment ago from 1 Peter, in his own words, he says, we were eyewitnesses to the revelation, to the transfiguration. We saw it firsthand. And imagine what that must have been like. The Bible says that Jesus' garments became radiant and exceedingly white. So much to the point that it was blinding them. That they literally had to, to either cover their eyes or, or close their eyes. Now in Mark chapter 9 verse 1, I skipped over this last week intentionally. I read it at the end, but didn't speak much of it. Mark chapter 9 verse 1 says, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is referring to this event that took place on the Mount, the Transfiguration. John Phillips explains it this way, and I quote, The Transfiguration was a foreshadow of that event. Only Peter, James, and John saw it. Those three men saw in miniature 
the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus was transfigured, which means to change the form or appearance. No fuller could have produced whiteness to compare with the dazzling splendor of the Lord's transfigured peasant robe. That robe without ablaze with light was a reflection of his stainless character within. End of quote. They witness this firsthand. Jesus was transfigured. But not only did they see Jesus, which would have been more than enough to see, Mark tells us that they also saw Elijah and they saw Moses. And what were these two guys doing? They were talking with Jesus. Man, wouldn't you like to have been the mouse on the wall? Not on the wall, the mosquito on the wall, the fly on the wall, the mouse on the ground, something like that. One of those, just to be able to hear what it was they were saying. What was taking place? Listen to this. They saw the glory of God. They were eyewitnesses to the revelation. But notice, secondly, we see the responses. The responses. Now, now Mark is telling the story. And what we have here are several different responses. I want you to notice first Peter's response. Have you ever been in a situation before where you didn't know what to do and you weren't even sure what to say? And if you're honest, you've probably stuck your foot right in your mouth. And you've thought for the longest time, if I could only take those words back. I believe Peter was in a very similar situation. You see, for Peter, James, and John, it wasn't just one of those, oh, wow, moments. It wasn't one of those events where they said to one another, hey, can you believe what just took place? I can't believe that. What's he going to do next? It wasn't that type of situation. No, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that they were terrified. In other words, they were literally scared to death. The circumstances were overwhelming. Let me pause there for just a moment. Some of you have been in a similar situation. Over the course of this pandemic... The circumstances have been overwhelming. And you've been wringing your hands. You've been shaking your head. You've been worrying. Deep in your stomach, in your gut. You're just full of anxiety. And fear. Because the circumstances are overwhelming. The circumstances may be overwhelming for you. But listen to this. They're not overwhelming for Jesus. Amen? And Jesus is with you just as Jesus was with these guys. Listen to me. These guys over and over and over have been terrified. And Jesus says to him, hey guys, I'm right here with you. And the same is true of you today. Jesus is with you. There's no need to be terrified. Remember back in Mark chapter 4? They encountered the storm on the Sea of Galilee. I love this. They are terrified. They're screaming. They're yelling. They're frightened. They don't know what to do. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. Because what's out of their hands is under His control. And then we learn in Mark chapter 6, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and they're terrified. 
The circumstances are overwhelming. They don't know what to do. And it's Jesus. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Do not fear. For I am with you. So they witnessed this transfiguration. And even in the midst of that, they were afraid. They were terrified. And they weren't even sure what to say. They didn't know what to do. And I love Peter because I can relate to Peter. I mean, one minute he's ready to punch somebody in the face. And then the next minute he's on his knees repenting. And then he's denying Jesus. And then he's repenting again. And then he gets up in Jesus' face and says, You're not going to die. I'm not going to let that happen to you. And then he has to repent of that again. And it's like that. It's up and down. It's like a roller coaster. But listen to what he says here. And I love how the NLT renders this in verses 5 and 6. He says, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say. For they were all terrified. So Luke tells us in his account that Peter, he didn't even recognize what he was saying. I mean, he just uttered these words. And over the years, I've come to learn <laughs> that it's sometimes better to just zip it and say nothing at all. Amen. There's sometimes when you don't even have the words to say. When you don't even know what you should say. And it's times like that that it's best to say nothing at all. The disciples were in that situation. Now, Mark doesn't record this, but it's important to note what also took place when they heard the Father's response. That's Peter's response. In Matthew 17, 6, it says that Peter, James, and John, they fell to the ground because they were terrified. They saw what happened in the transfiguration and they immediately hit their face. Don't think for a moment when you see Jesus face to face that you're just going to run and act crazy. No, you're going you're to hit the ground, amen? You're going to lay your crown at the Savior's feet. He's worthy. They were terrified. Their face hit the ground. Notice also the Father's response. I love this. It's in that moment, the Bible says here, that a, a cloud formed and it overshadowed them. And then they heard a voice come out of the cloud. And this is what the voice said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. These words sound familiar, don't they? It, it seems like we've heard similar words before. Well, we have in Matthew chapter 3. Remember when Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized? If you ever get an opportunity to go, you've got to go. You've got to go stand in the Jordan River. You've got to go walk in the Jordan River. You've got to be baptized in the Jordan River. To stand right there in that river. And to think that this is the same river that, that my Lord and Savior came to be baptized in. And when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John was like, hold up. Uh-uh. I'm... I'm not worthy. I'm not going to do that. I need to be baptized by you. But John willingly obeyed Jesus' instructions. He was baptized. And listen to what Matthew tells us. He was baptized. He came up immediately out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who's speaking here? It's the Father. God the Father. Our Heavenly Father. This is what he says. Don't miss this. This is Jesus, my Son. In Him I am well pleased. This is the most important part. This is my Son, Jesus. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. If they needed to listen, don't you think you and I need to listen as well? I mean, if the Father gives us instructions to listen, we better heed the words and we better listen. So all at once, all of this has taken place. And then Peter, James, and John, they look around and Elijah and Moses are gone. And it's just them and Jesus. You see, the Jews looked up to and revered both Moses and Elijah. But in a split second, these two wonderful men were gone. And even today, there are Jews and other people alike that revere Moses and Elijah and look to them as great men, yet they deny Jesus. And I would have you be reminded that here on the mountain, Moses and Elijah are gone. It's Jesus. Now Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Jesus is superior. There's never been another person like Jesus. There will never be another person like Jesus. You see, as Tony Marita explains, and I quote, The transfiguration of Jesus confirms that despite having the outward appearance of a mere mortal man, Jesus of Nazareth is in his nature and essence God. Deity dressed in a body, end of quote. You see, Jesus is the God-man. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. There's never been a point in time that Jesus has not existed. He's always been. He will always be. The Apostle John described it this way. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, and dwelled among us, don't miss this, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They were eyewitnesses to the account. They recognized that this Jesus, there's something different about Him. This Jesus is the same Jesus that left heaven and came to earth Passionately pursuing you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you were condemned to die. He was buried in a tomb. And on the third day he arose from the grave. Conquering death, hell and the grave. And he lives forevermore. You see the transfiguration account. Is not here by accident. It's not here by coincidence. No when we read the Old Testament. Keep in mind you've got to. Read the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament in order to make sense of the New Testament. 
And when we study in the book of Exodus chapter 24, write that down. I would encourage you to go back and read through that. It was there that Moses also went up a mountain. When you study the scriptures, you see that remarkable events took place on top of mountains. Moses went up a mountain. It was a different mountain. It was Mount Sinai. And he went up that mountain with three people, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders. But Merida summarizes it well here. He says, and I quote, a new and greater Moses has arrived. This is not Mount Sinai all over again. No, this is a gospel mountain, not a law mountain. Here the law of God and the grace of God converge in the one who is God incarnate, and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promised, look at him and believe his gospel. End of quote. That begs the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is the euangelion. And before you can understand the good news of the gospel, you've got to recognize the bad news and the condition that you and I are in apart from Jesus. The Bible says, in the book of Genesis, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created a perfect world. When you read through the Genesis account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you learn that God created two perfect people, Adam and Eve. And he gave them a choice. He said, you can do anything with the exception of this one thing. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For as sure as you eat of it, you will die. And what did they do? The exact same thing we would have done. They ate of the tree. And in a moment, sin entered the world. Sin is anything you say, think, or do that's displeasing to God. So rather this morning that rather this morning of thinking that you're the good person and we're all the good people that we need to be, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're all bad people. You see, God doesn't create good people over here and bad people over here. We are all, according to Ephesians chapter 2, walking dead men. And we need to be resurrected to life. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you and that's me, your pastor. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. So what you and I get as a result of our sin is not only physical death, but eternal separation from God. But God's a loving, compassionate and gracious God. He's a merciful God. I love John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And if you'll confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you shall be saved. Praise God for that. Amen. To be saved from what? From yourself. To be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you've not yet responded to the gospel, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that shortly. For those of us who are in Christ, we've responded to the gospel. You hear me say this time and time again. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Jesus did for you on Calvary's cross. Remind yourself of the person you used to be before Jesus came into your life. I don't need to go around the room and get you to tell me what your life used to be like. I know what it used to be like because my life used to be the same. We may not have necessarily done all the same things, 
And we might not have necessarily been caught up in all the same sins. But we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all recognize and realize today that our hope is in Jesus. The same Jesus that was transfigured on this mountain. The same Jesus that these guys witnessed. And we see the response that Peter gave. We see the Father's response. But notice also here Jesus' response. And this ties in with what we've looked at previously as well. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, as they were coming down the mountain. Hold on there just a minute. The Bible doesn't say this. But, but I, just, I just imagine what they must have said. They were probably like, oh man! Jesus, we got to come down the mountain. Like my kids, right? We got to go to bed. Yes, you got to go to bed. You got to come down off the mountain. Get down off the mountain. So they, they come down off of the mountain, the Bible says in verse 9. And Jesus gives them orders. This is his response. Not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now we've seen this unfold numerous times in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, remember the leper that Jesus healed? Jesus said to him, say nothing to anyone. Imagine if you were in his shoes. You've been healed of leprosy. And Jesus says, don't say anything. He did what we would have done. Hey, Jesus, help me! Praise God! Then in Mark chapter 5, Jesus healed a little girl. He gave strict orders. Don't tell anyone. In other words, he's saying, don't tell anyone just yet. Because the timing is not right. The timing. What's the timing? What's the ingredient here that you and I cannot overlook? That we cannot miss? Suffering and the resurrection. Do not tell anybody until I arise. And then we know, because we can go back and read it in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Jesus gave them instructions. He ascended. Peter proclaims the gospel. Thousands of lives are changed. Not yet. So we see the revelation, the responses. But notice third and finally, the reports. The reports. We find this in verses 10 through 13. Now the disciples, they report to one another. I mean, they are sitting there. They're scratching their heads. They're trying to figure all of this out. Jesus is going to suffer. Hold, hold on. I mean, they were expecting a Messiah that would come on a white horse to slay the Romans, to take control of everything. And they're scratching their heads trying to figure out all of this. And this is where you and I have an advantage. You and I have an advantage. We have the complete revelation of God. From Genesis to Revelation. We can look back and see what takes place. These guys weren't able to see that. They were living this out. They were a part of these events as they unfolded. So, so they're trying to figure out what all of this means. And Jesus is going to explain it to them in more detail in the coming chapters. Notice also though the report that Elijah must come first. I mean, they're all caught up on that. They knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. So verse 11 says, They ask him, saying, What is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Y'all remember Elijah, right? Elijah the Tishbite, the hairy man who wore a leather belt around his waist. Who does that sound like? John the Baptist, right? 
John was even referred to as Elijah. You know, the same Elijah that, that called down fire from heaven, that stood atop Mount Carmel and defeated the prophets of, of Baal. Elijah, the, the man who prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. They needed some of our rain, didn't they? Didn't rain for three and a half years. The same Elijah that did not die a natural death, but was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Jesus said Elijah does come first and restore all things, but notice what else he says. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. He said Elijah does come first and restore all things. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, I think John MacArthur explains it well. Listen to this, and I quote, Our Lord is saying Elijah will come before the second coming. John was a preview, John the Baptist. And even the way they treated John was consistent with the way they treated Elijah. So he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and is treated the way Elijah was treated. And Jesus was treated the same way. The Son of Man must suffer. Notice the third report. Jesus will suffer. Verse 12, And yet how is it written that the Son of Man, He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt or despised. You see, the disciples had gotten a glimpse of His glory. But that's not the end of the story. You know why? Because Jesus has not yet been to a hill called Calvary. He's on his way there. And they're headed down the mountain. Peter, James, and John didn't see this. But as they head down that mountain, Jesus has his eyes on Jerusalem. Jesus has his eyes on a hill called Calvary. He's on a mission. He's on a mission to do what the Son of Man came to do. You heard me say this back around Christmas time. Yes, He was born, born in a manger, but He was born in order that He might die. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and three days rise again. I love what MacArthur says here as well. Don't miss this, and I quote, because it's suffering and then glory. We want the glory without the suffering. The Son of Man must suffer. So firsthand they witness this glorious account. But you and I live some 2,000 years on, on this side of the event. So it begs the question, how does this account of the transfiguration apply to me? I'm glad you asked. David Mathis provides some insight in an article entitled "Prayer, uh, The Prayer God Loves to Answer Most. Listen to this and listen carefully. And I quote, God loves to answer the prayer, show me your glory. When your soul hungers, when your tank feels empty, when you're running on fumes, when you open your Bible in the morning and ask for God to help, a great go-to request is this, simple Honest, humble plea, 
Father, show me your glory. God made us in His image to reflect Him in the world. But we will not fully reflect Him if we haven't yet stood in awe of Him and enjoyed His beauty in our hearts. And our hearts cannot look on Him in all if we haven't yet seen Him with the eyes of our soul. The fullest response to our plea, show me your glory, is to turn the eyes of our soul to Jesus. In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And our knowing the fullness of His answer doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. On the contrary, it inspires us to ask all the more. End of quote. Church, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 13, it's time for believers to awake. It's time for us to no longer settle for the ordinary, but to really get serious about our faith. To really get serious about our walk with Jesus. It's time for you and me to seek the Lord and ask the Lord just as Moses asked, show me your glory. Show me your glory. You've been listening to Changed by His Word, the preaching and teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Lee. We hope that you have been encouraged and challenged by this message. If you have any questions about the message or about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact Pastor Brad at changedbyhisword at gmail.com. Thank you and God bless.